0: Hi everyone. Welcome to the 7th Geopolitical Economy Hour, the program about the political and geopolitical economy of the fast-changing world of today. I'm Radhika Desai.
1: And I'm Michael Hudson.
0: And as some of you know, I've just got back from Russia, which is why we are doing this show in a week's delay. Um, And of course, it's been a really interesting uh, time there. I attended many conferences, talked to loads of people, economists, political observers, commentators, etc. And Michael and I thought that what we do today is talk about my impressions and also weave them into a broader discussion about how the world order is changing towards multipolarity. You know, so many things have happened. President Xi went to uh, went to Russia and uh, President Macron went to China and so many things are going on. So we'll weave all of that into a broader discussion about my impressions from Russia and so on. So uh, what Michael and I thought we'd do is we focus on two particular points that we thought were interesting that I picked up on when I was in Russia is that And during the whirlwind of conferences that I was at, at which some very prominent uh, uh, Russians spoke, uh, the one thing that I heard was uh, that was really interesting is a decisive statement coming from some of the most influential uh, speakers that essentially Russia is moving away from the West and will never return. And the second uh, idea, which uh, is also very fascinating, is that increasingly the Russians are now thinking of themselves themselves as part of a world majority, right? Michael, to, to us, these are the two most interesting things.
1: The uh, important uh, point is that once you break away from the West, what are you going to break to? And while you were in Russia talking about how they wanted something new, uh, uh, the, the whole uh, West was in a turmoil and we're really at a turning point of uh, civilization, probably the biggest turning point since uh, uh, World War I. Uh, where uh, in order to not follow the West, there has to be a whole new set of institutions that are non-Western, a new kind of international monetary fund, uh, meaning uh, some kind of a means of financing trade and investment among the non-Western countries, some kind of a new World Bank. Well, so far we have the Belt and Road Initiative uh, for a new kind of uh, internet investment. Uh, And what we're really talking about, uh, since a theme of our talk all along has been uh, uh, Biden saying that uh, uh, this uh, split is going to go on for 20 years, we're really talking about the split between Western finance capitalism and uh, the global majority moving towards socialism.
0: Exactly. And, and, you know, it seems as though there is an increasing consciousness of this in Russia. So just to elaborate on the first point, which is of Russia turning away from the West, you know, I was at a conference at the higher school of economics, and it's important to underline that this is a very prestigious post-communist institution, which was designed in order to essentially develop and an, 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 an entrench neoliberalism in Russia. And this, in the the hallowed halls of this institution, which by the way is very beautiful, it was a former military academy, we had this, uh, they have an annual conference every year on economic policy and so on. And this is where, in a session on the world majority, as it was entitled, I heard Dmitry Trenin make a really interesting statement. Now, Dmitry Trenin is also interesting and important. He used to be, again, part of it, this larger pro-Western, pro-neoliberal um, sort of group of people. He headed the Carnegie Institution in Moscow. Um, and interestingly, after, uh, uh, you know, particularly after the t- 2014 and after 2022, when many people of his ilk left Russia, he has decided to stay and he is still very much at the forefront of the commentariat in Russia and so on. And he said, when the war is over, he said, Russia will not strive to be part of the West. That chapter, he said, is over. So that's really fascinating that somebody like he should say that And just as a matter of settled fact. And this is, you know, interesting because, you know, if you cast your mind back, you know, Lenin from the days for well, earliest days of the Russian Revolution and even before realized that Russia's fate was tied up with the East. But then in particular, after the Second World War and Khrushchev and all that used to an increasing turn to the West and Russia has remained very oriented to the West. And now this is over. And the chair of the session uh, was a, a professor called, an elderly professor called Professor Sergei uh, Karaganov. And he had been one of the founders of the Valdai Club again, the Valdai Club, which is sort of the equivalent of the uh, in, the um, uh, Council on Foreign Affairs in the United States, the Valdai Club was also set up as a way uh, in which Russian intellectuals would meet Western intellectuals and you know think about sort of, Russia as part of the West and so on. But this person also concluded the session by reiterating, and he said, "Russia," he said, "will never come back to the West." It's dull there, he said. So I thought this was really fascinating.
1: Well, the interesting thing there is that while you're talking about what Russia's future is with uh, uh, China, Iran, and the rest of the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Uh, there was uh, a sort of frantic talk in uh, Washington, uh, especially at today's, uh, uh, this week's uh, meetings with the IMF and the World Bank about, uh, well, if if, uh, Eurasia goes that way, what is going to happen to what we call the global south. What's going to happen to Latin America and Africa? Well, you've had uh, first uh, Mr. Blinken of the US and then Vice President Harris go to Africa is uh, to say, uh, we want to uh, make sure that we have your cobalt, we have your raw materials, and that you leave all of the uh, U.S. and NATO investments in place uh, and do not uh, give uh, any of the cobalt or lithium or other raw materials to China and Russia and uh, Eurasia. So uh, essentially, the, uh, uh, the Southern Hemisphere countries are being... Uh, faced with the choice. But what's so interesting is uh, what makes this choice different from what it was, say, in 1945? Uh, After World War uh, II, the united states had uh, all sorts of economic arguments as to why capitalism uh, was going to be, uh, offer uh, prosperity to uh, the whole world including uh, uh, the southern hemisphere uh, and russia at that time uh, under uh, uh, soviet russia uh, was uh, pushing uh, uh, communism well there's no ideological discussion today on the uh, on the one hand the west doesn't have any uh, attempt to justify joining the U.S. and NATO bloc. All it says is, if you don't join us, we're going to do to you what we did to Libya. Uh, and we're going to do to you what we, what, what we did to Ukraine is pure force. Uh, and uh, th- the question is now what uh, the global majority uh, and what Eurasia is going to say. Well, we're not going to force you. We're not going to attack you. We're not going to have a color revolution, uh, but here is the economic future and the way of organizing the international uh, trade and investment market that is going to help you. Uh, well, you can just imagine if uh, Jesus had come in and tried to found uh, Christianity by saying uh, we're going to kill everybody who disagrees with this." Uh, that would not have ever taken off. And uh, uh, I think that the neoliberal plan today has about as much uh, chance of taking off as uh, uh, y- you're not going to get the world to follow you just by threatening to bomb it. But that's all that America and NATO have to offer, the refraining from bombing other countries if they don't let things the way they used to be.
0: And exactly, you know, all the West has to offer is sticks, whereas China comes loaded with all the carrots that you can imagine, the juiciest carrots that you can imagine. And so this world-majority concept that's come up is basically, essentially, all the non-Western world, uh, the world-majority can see these carrots. They are responding to these carrots. And the other interesting thing is that this these carrots are not neoliberal carrots this is the other thing that's very very clear so but l- let me just first deal with this world majority thing because again at the same conference uh, it turned out that uh, people you know the the session was titled you know uh, development for the world majority etc cetera, etc cetera. and so the the chair of the of the meeting professor karaganov also said that this idea had actually come up at the higher school of economics, which is, you know, in some kind of a brainstorming session, in which the purpose was to say, okay, Russia is not the third world, Russia is not the developing world, so Russia is part of the post-communist world, so how do we conceive of a single entity of which Russia is now a part, that Russia is now a very active part, It's going to be one of the leaders of this and so on. And so having sort of brainstormed a lot, somebody came up with this idea of a world majority. And so increasingly, the Russians are thinking of themselves not being part of the West, whose attractiveness is shrinking and whose borders are also rather small, if you think about it, the bulk of the... um, uh, 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 GDP and, and people in the world are outside the West. And this is also becoming increasingly clear. The West now accounts for something of about 30% of world GDP. So this is the rest of the 70%. And it's only going to grow. Meanwhile, the West's neoliberal policies are accelerating the um the decline of this. So, and, and and Michael, we're going to talk about these institutions in a second, but let me just say one other thing about the domestic policy, which you touched on, and then we'll move over to the institution that this world majority is going to create. And that is that, you know, we attended another conference as well at the start, but we arrived there, because the St. Petersburg Economic uh, uh, Congress, and the St. Petersburg Economic Congress is another annual event, and what really struck us this time, you know, we attended the plenary session at which a lot of very important people, including Sergei Glazyev, who is the, um, uh, uh, the uh, 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 who's, who's leading the Eurasian integration process in Russia. So Glazyev spoke, the president of the Free Economic Society of Russia spoke, a number of important ministers and so on also spoke. And at this conference, what was remarkable is that barring the one or two sort of die-hard neoliberals who were also, by the way, who also spoke at the main plenary stand. Barring one or two people, the overwhelming majority of the speakers voiced an anti-neoliberal consensus. Neoliberalism is finished in Russia. The overwhelming consensus is that behind some sort of a developmental state that is going to uh, engage in a fairly... Uh, 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 effective and a high degree of state intervention to ensure that Russia uh, 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 does not lag behind technologically, that russia's Russian industries revitalized, that Russia uh, attains you know uh, 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 in, in trade terms, Russia is, is in a winning situation, etc. So basically across the board there was um, a, a, a consensus against neoliberalism which I thought was really remarkable.
1: Well, the problem uh, in what you say is the word finished. Uh, it's one thing to say uh, we are going to have a new non-neoliberal new order. And, of course, that's what uh, Russia, China and uh, Iran and the other countries, uh, India, are all trying to do. But the problem is that uh, there still is a neoliberal re- uh Uh, world order that uh, covers a lot of the uh, uh, world majority, and what are we going to do about the survival of these neoliberal institutions? What are we going to do about all the massive foreign debt that's owed to uh, 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 to the west by uh, um, uh, the uh, what uh, what we can call here the global south because that's really what owes the debt not uh, the world majority and uh, that's really what uh, has been under discussion in the United States while you're in Russia how do they use this uh, carryover this legacy of debt is a stranglehold. On the third world countries, well, uh, there have been a lot of articles uh, about uh, what China uh, has to say about this. Uh, The uh, the Americans and NATO are all in agreement. Uh, The third, the uh, global uh, South America and Africa can of course pay their debts if they don't pay China. (laughs) Uh, They're blaming China for everything, who's uh, 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 the last uh, newcomer at all and is the least neoliberal. China says, well, wait a minute, we are not going to write down our debts to uh, Africa and South America just so they can afford to pay you, the bondholders, for your loans that have gone bad. A loan that has gone bad is a bad loan and uh, should be written off. But there isn't any system for internet for uh, government bankruptcy because the whole purpose of having a financialized uh, world order and finance capitalism is you never let other countries declare bankruptcy and wipe out their debts like you can do in America and Canada and other uh, domestic uh, countries. You want to keep this debt forever is an irreversible uh, burden that so that uh, an indebted country can never break away from the U.S. and NATO. So the question is, uh, how will these new organizations, these alternative to neoliberalism for trade and investment uh, uh, that uh, they, uh, you've been hearing them talk about, how are they going to deal uh, deal with countering this legacy? Uh, as uh, President Biden says, you're either with us or against us. So. How, what is, how are these are the rest of the countries going to choose which bloc they want to uh, uh, to join?
0: Well, I think that the whole issue of, of debt, uh, 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 you know, debt, third world debt in particular has become a really important issue. Uh, At this point, but and and it's become an important issue precisely because now China is such a large part of the scene, and so the West has you know, I remember going back to the early, earliest days of the pandemic when third world debt had also figured as a major issue. Already at that point, the key uh, way the key reason why the debt issues were not going to be settled is because the West could not come to terms with the fact that it had to deal with China and that it had to deal equitably with China because what the West wants to do is precisely to get China to refinance, uh, you know, the debt owed to it so that the third world debt repayments go to private lenders. And China is basically questioning the terms of all of this because China is saying, look, you, if you want, you know, for example, China is saying, why should the IMF and the World Bank have priority in terms of, you know, why should its debt not be cancelled and so on. And, this, and, and the West are saying, well, this has always been so. And China is saying, well, if you don't want to reform the IMF and the World Bank, then we are not going to accept their priority. If we have to take a haircut, they will also have to take a haircut. They simply do not accept that these institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, have uh, any sort of priority. And this is part of the undermining, you know, as you were saying, this is one of the biggest changes since the First World War. And part of these changes is that the world made by the imperialist powers, who were still very powerful at the end of the Second World War, is now increasingly uh, disappearing. So, exactly.
1: Well, you and I have been talking about this since the COVID uh, began uh, in uh, 2020, and it's only right now that finally the uh, IMF and the World Bank meetings are getting around to finding finding this out three years too late. They, they didn't want to confront the problem that finance capitalism has a problem. The debts ultimately cannot be paid. The debts mount up. Uh, faster, especially on the third world. Uh, and the reason the, uh, that uh, uh, we discussed it and they didn't was uh, they didn't want uh, a- Africa and uh, South America to deal with the problem. They wanted the problem just to go on and get uh, worse and worse. And so now uh, the uh, IMF has published a uh, chart saying, wait a minute, mo- uh, most of the uh, third world countries are now in crisis. Uh, they're not attributing it to the uh, sanctions against uh, Russian oil and uh uh, uh food exports they're not attributing it to the uh increase in uh the dollar's exchange rate by the federal reserve they're just blaming statism well obviously the uh the one thing that characterizes the new uh, uh global major uh, world majority uh order is a mixed economy where uh you uh, other countries will do what china has done they will make money and land meaning housing and employment Uh, public rights, public utilities, uh, instead of uh, uh, commodifying them and privatizing them and financializing them as uh, has occurred in the West. So we're really talking about in order to make a, uh, to move away from uh, the dollar NATO sphere, uh, we're not really talking about just uh, one national currency or another. It's not going to be a question of uh, the Chinese yen and the Russian ruble and other currencies replacing the dollar. It's a whole different economic system. Uh, and that's what—that's uh, the one thing that is not uh, uh, permitted in the uh, mainstream media uh, to discuss. Uh, they're still on the "there is no alternative" Margaret Thatcher uh, slogan instead well, of uh, talking about what is the alternative going to be, because obviously things cannot last the way they are now.
0: No, uh, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we we want to talk about exactly what these new institutions are, because the thing is that you you see two very different things going on. On the one hand, there are a number of bilateral and multilateral arrangements being made on a regional basis, whether it's the BRICS or the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement and what have you. Uh, These arrangements are being made. But on the other hand, people are also talking about trying to create some sort of universal, a system, you know, some kind of bank or like uh, a, 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 a bank or an international clearing union like arrangements. But the problem with them is that, of course, at the moment, in you know, precisely because the West is taking the position that it's taking, it is not going to cooperate in anything universal. And without that, we will not have a universal agreement. So that in, in that sense, what we will see is necessarily The emergence of uh, regional agreements may be quite substantial, but nevertheless they will still be regional.
1: Well, the question then is uh, what kind of a revolution is there going to be? Uh, uh, Pepe Escobar just wrote an article a few days ago saying that uh, what's happening now is uh, the world's in another uh, 1848. Uh, meaning a revolution. But the 1848 revolution was a bourgeois revolution. It was uh, uh, the progressive force of industrial capitalism against the landlords and against the banks, against the rentier class that had survived from feudalism. But uh, 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 what was needed is a further revolution, obviously a 20th century uh, revolution in in order uh, to not only uh, uh, free uh, capital, from the, uh, the landlord and the banking class, but to free the whole population from the, uh, the, ca- the capital class uh, in general. That's what nobody dares talk about, and uh, uh, obviously you're not having China proselytize. It has not come out and say, here's our economic system as opposed to yours, uh, and yet all of this philosophy is going to be implicit in any kind of restructuring. Uh, that they're going to have, and so the question is, what will be the guidelines uh, behind this? Uh, to what extent are they discuss- Are they going this far in, in the discussions you heard to discuss? You know, just well, how yeah, radical they can be.
0: That's a really interesting point, and that brings me. You know, I just wanted to also say that you know, the the impression one got when one in Russia was that you know it. You didn't get the impression that this is a nation at war. There was no jingoism. There were hardly ever any those Z signs to be seen. Maybe I saw a total of uh, two or three of them, maybe perhaps all told in, during all my travels around Russia. Um, and in many ways, you know, uh, the, 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 the support for the war is there and it's a very quiet kind of support. Everybody may, whatever view one may have, everybody can see that a Russian victory is absolutely essential, that a NATO victory would be disastrous for Russia, for the rest of the world, etc. So all of this is very clear. And in many ways, if there is a criticism of the Putin administration made by those who are sort of partisans of this developmental state, etc., it is that the Putin government has not used the opportunity created by sanctions to move more decisively on the one hand to mobilize for war more decisively, both in terms of mobilizing troops as well as economic mobilization in order to win the war. And then as part of the economic mobilization, the points that people would make, uh, some uh, critical economists would have made, is that the that the Putin administration is still leaning a little too much in the direction of neoliberalism. For example, capital controls aren't as extensive as they should be. Uh, Monetary policy is far tighter than it should be. Um, uh, That uh, the state has not been mobilized in order to, uh, uh, you know, the state has not uh, uh, tried to create Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 to intervene in sectors other than defense production in order to try to uh, uh, increase uh, production and so on. So in all of these ways, if if there is a criticism of the Putin administration, it comes from the fact that he has not been decisive enough. So I would say that there are a couple of things emerged from this. On the one hand, sanctions have definitely created the objective conditions in which uh, anti-neoliberal direction of policy, developmental state direction of policy has become a necessity. And I think this is, of course, most true in Russia. But I think most countries will find that if they wish to create any kind of development, they will have to adopt anti-neoliberal uh, 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 developmental policy. So in that sense, uh, there's, you know, there's still a residual effect of neoliberalism, but circumstances are going to ensure that, neoliberalism is essentially finished, because any successful attempts at creating development will have to involve the kind of state interventionism which is sort of this far away from socialism.
1: Well, while you were there, both uh, President Putin and uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov have been using the same word over and over again, uh, and that is is multi, uh, uh, multipolarity. Uh, but multipolarity, uh, that's the sort of modern world word for the 1648 Westphalian revolution uh, that ended the Thirty Years' War. The Westphalian system was that no nation should interfere With the policies of other nations and that was uh, the law that governed uh, basically all international relations uh, until 1945 when the United States said well we got to interfere with every other nation uh, basically but no nation uh, has uh, any uh, authority over us and we will never uh, belong to any organization in which we do not have veto power as, we, as America has in the uh, UN, the IMF, and the World Bank. So uh, the question is: uh, what is uh, multipolarity is not simply uh, the countries, uh, uh, you can see how the first stage of this is. Uh, countries are trading with each other. Uh, the all, the uh, recent deals between Saudi Arabia, China, uh, Russia, uh, uh, to deal uh, to uh, uh, denominate their trade in their own currencies. Well, this means that countries are going to hold in their foreign reserves uh, foreign uh, each other's currencies. And uh, the first question is, how are we going? What will this mix of foreign currencies will be? Well, I think the natural uh, solution would be for uh, the mix of currencies to reflect uh, the proportions in which a country's foreign trade is in. Uh, And because China is uh, the major uh, uh, trader uh, of so many countries, obviously uh, the Chinese currency is going to play a role in uh, uh, a major role. But uh, as we've talked before, this does not mean that uh, China's currency is going to replace the dollar. No currency will replace the dollar, because there will never be dollar standard again there will never be anything like one country controlling other countries with the idea to, uh, with the ability to grab their money at will to cause a crisis by uh, cutting them off from the swift uh, bank clearing system from doing the things that the dollar did uh, but much more than just holding each other's uh, currency uh, there's the whole superstructure of how the economy is going to be structured uh, behind that uh, and uh, uh, you and I have talked before about uh, Uh, The fact that, given the fact that uh, uh, many countries now are having difficulty, to put it uh, mildly, uh, paying uh, their foreign debts, uh, uh, the countries that uh, agree to join with Russia and China uh, and Eurasia uh, are going to... uh, have access to uh, a new kind of an international bank. Uh, And this international bank will create something that uh, uh, in one sense, it's like gold, in a sense of being a currency, a a vehicle that uh, countries can use to pay debts To each other, governments can use to each other not to be spent domestically under the uh, gold exchange standard. Nobody was paying in gold in the 30s and 40s or 50s or 60s, but gold was used among central banks. So we're going to see something like uh, the uh, Keynes's uh, 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 bank or currency that you and uh, uh, I have discussed so much, uh, or like the uh, international monetary funds (SDRs), except that uh, these uh, new international uh, Bancor will not be created just to give to military countries to wage war against countries that the United States doesn't like.
0: No, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is that moving towards that sort of situation, uh, uh, you know, a, a kind of Bancor-like situation, would be very helpful because if you think about the principles uh, that uh, that uh, Keynes took into account when designing the International Currency Union and Bancor and so on, what were some of the key things? I would say the first and most important thing was that countries would implement capital controls, which is why central banks would retain their power to uh, uh, to settle balances with this international currency, this this multilaterally agreed international currency, which is not the currency, domestic currency of any country. And so capital controls, I would say, are also important because look at it this way. One of the key reasons why a kind of sensible economic policy of the sort that you and I would endorse, the developmental economic policy, one that is uh, designed to create a productive economy and a broadly based prosperity. One of the key hindrances to this is the excessive financialization uh, of uh, of, well, of the dollar system and all the elites in various third world countries and the world majority countries, including Russia, that participate in this dollar system. So I would say that uh, uh, imposing capital controls would be critical. Another really important thing that comes out of this is that Keynes's um, uh, system, the, the International Currency Union, was designed to minimize imbalances persistent imbalances you would never so so essentially countries would never have persistent imbalances in the uh, uh, ex- uh, uh, imbalances in terms of you know trade or or, or investment or anything uh, there will be no persistent export surpluses no persistent trade deficits and this is also the opposite of what we have right now the us the us dollar based system in fact relies on the systematic uh, creation of imbalances in which the United States must run current account deficits in order to provide the world with with uh, uh, with, uh, with liquidity, and of course, the United States and the Federal Reserve has also, in order to make the dollar more acceptable, sponsored the massive financialization. Of, uh, uh, of the dollar system generally. So that it also would be, uh, and, and it would also therefore be a more stable system, and it would also be one in which the uh, the development of some parts of the world and the underdevelopment of other parts of the world does not become a perpetual part of the system because what does balanced trade mean? If uh, if one country starts generating too much export surpluses and this is discouraged by taxing their earnings, at the level of the international clearing union, then this creates an incentive for the country that is the most successful to invest in the success of other countries so that trade rises but it does so in a balanced fashion. So that is another principle. And a final point that I'd like to make, you know, is that this new currency order that will be created, and and I'm sure that, well, it's already coming into existence. The question only is, you know, to what extent can it become a universal order? But this new currency order will have one very uh, important uh, uh, advantage which is that the dollar system has always rested on the systematic devaluation of the currencies of other countries, which means that the rest of the world has to work its guts out in order to export enough in, in you know, export vast volumes, to first world countries, which is of course, one of the key reasons why inflation has been so low in Western countries in the neoliberal period. Um, So they have to work harder and harder to export vast volumes and earn tiny amounts in value terms. So the discrepancy between the volume and value of third world exports or world majority exports is massive. And if the rest of the world, if the world majority starts earning uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 starts getting a better uh, value for for, for their exports, starts uh, uh, enjoying a better exchange rate, essentially, then it will be better remunerated for its efforts. And I think this is going to be very important for so many third world countries, so many world majority countries.
1: Well, you've made the key point right there. The dollar system has uh, produced austerity. The international financial system's result is austerity. And one way that it locks this in is in forcing other countries to devalue is they try to throw more and more of their currency onto the world market to pay their foreign debt. Now, when a country devalues, what's really devalued? Uh, The price of raw materials isn't devalued. There's a common world price for all raw materials. There's a common world price for oil and energy. There's a common world price for food. There's a common world price for uh, machinery and capital goods. When you devalue, only one thing is devalued, the wages of labor. Uh, And domestic uh, rents. So uh, when the IMF talks about austerity, what it really means is our class war against labor to make sure that uh, uh, we can uh, increase profits uh, in the uh, U.S. NATO core by uh, continually reducing what we have to pay for labor uh, that's paid abroad. Uh, And of course, the sin of China was not letting its uh, labor be devalued, but instead using industrialization and even uh, its financial links to the West to build up and increase its living standards, not roll them down. So uh, if if you uh, realize that the whole point uh, of uh, the financial system is how do you make a financial system that doesn't result in uh, debt peonage and uh, degradation of labor? Well, then you may not want to use central banks. Central banks are creating by the commercial banks against the rest of society. It's the central banks that have helped destroy industrial capitalism in the West. You really only need the treasury, which is what you had before central banks, and what China uses. It really has, it's, Bank of China is really an extension of the treasury. It's not an American or European-style central bank whose job is to support uh, real estate prices and make housing more expensive so that the domestic labor has to go into debt to buy more and more Uh, debt-leveraged housing, uh, and that's not to push up stock and bond prices of the 1%, uh, the Treasury would represent the uh, uh, population as a whole. Now, this used to be called democracy, uh, but President uh, Biden calls it autocracy. So uh, autocracy is uh, supporting labor. Uh, uh, What he calls democracy is the financial war against labor, just to get the Orwellian vocabulary straight.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you, uh, Michael, you know better than me, you know, the very origin of the word tyrant comes from the fact that a uh, debt crisis in Rome regularly led to the election of rulers who rule in the interests of the majority of the people the debtors and against the interests of a small number of creditors which is why the creditors ended up calling them tyrants uh, in fact apparently the word tyrant does not mean anything bad but it's come to mean something bad because basically we live in a world in which our vocabulary tells us that anything that restricts that 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 is against the interests of a tiny minority is somehow against our it, uh, against everybody's interest. But of course, this is not so. But, you know, uh, Michael, what you say makes me think of several things. Uh, just one tiny clarification, and that is, of course, you're absolutely right that the central banks, as we have in the United States I and mean, in most European countries, are totally agents of big financial capitalists. I agree completely, and that's how they have behaved. But of course, in in its essence, the idea of a central bank is precisely to act as a buffer between the internal domestic economy and the external economy in a way that it acts as a kind of shock absorber, that if there are external shocks, that the vast majority of the people ought not to suffer them. And that should be the case. Of course, this is subverted, but therefore central banks are important. And indeed, as you say, they should become arms of a broader uh, financial system which is aimed at creating... A, a, a productive growth, a stable growth, of course, in our time also ecologically sustainable growth, etc. So, uh, so just a small clarification about central banks. But then three quick points. Number one, you know, you you were pointing to uh, how uh, 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 the, this uh, the dollar system sort of bakes austerity into our system, and of course, again, Keynes's uh, design of the international clearing union. Uh, and Bancor was also uh, interesting from this perspective, because its trust was the opposite. The, uh, the, Of course, capital controls was a keystone of this system. You had to have capital controls, and the purpose of doing that was to ensure that all governments, if they so wished, that is to say, if they were so inclined, they could, if they wish, run their economies for full employment, uh, uh, with as much state intervention as necessary, with as big a role for the government in the economy as necessary, and so on. So, And this could be done because of capital controls. And this is also uh, brings me to my second point, which is, you know, it's been very fashionable in our neoliberal era to talk about the so-called uh, trilemma. Of policy, which is that of the three goals that are considered by neoliberals to be uh, desirable, namely having a, a a stable exchange rate, having an autonomous monetary policy, and free capital flows, they say you can only achieve two of these at any given time, but. My point is that, actually, this is not a trilemma at all. It's an absolute no-brainer. If you have capital controls, then you can have both an autonomous monetary policy and a stable exchange, and there is no need to worry about it. It's only by adding free capital flows as a desirable end to this mix that you create this artificial trilemma. It's a completely artificial trilemma. And a final point, you know, if currencies were really valued Uh, realistically, rather than this strange overvaluation of the dollar that we have all suffered from for so long, then, in fact, there would be even less need, even among the rich people of any country, would not feel such a big pressure to hold their, their money in dollars as they do today, because they only wish that because their own currencies are so... Uh, subject to the vagaries of the dollar system, you know, the Fed decides to jack up interest rates, then all the money that has been hitherto flowing into these uh, uh, non-Western economies flows right out, creating currency crises, debt crises, uh, import, you know, trade crises, and all of these sorts of things. So, the the currencies of the rest of the world, of of the countries of the world majority, would also be more stable, and that would actually decrease the attractiveness of dollars to even the elites of these societies.
1: Well, I think you're quite right about capital controls. And when I went to work uh, uh, in international finance in the 1960s, uh, a country there were dual exchange rates. Uh, the IMF every uh, month would publish the exchange rates for normal uh, trade in goods and services, and a different exchange rate for capital transactions, for uh, debt uh, and investment. So you had uh, uh, two exchange rates, and uh, uh, that's because there were capital controls. The IMF, uh, oh, I should not say the IMF, the United States uh, via the IMF uh, got rid of capital controls so that other countries could not protect themselves. Uh, only the United States could protect itself. That's the double standard. Uh, and uh, the, uh, also, as we've discussed before, Keynes wanted to solve this by something that is uh, uh, very interesting that the U.S. fought like anything not to accept. Keynes said, uh, how do you make an international financial system that is not going to be dominated by the strongest currency, by one currency swapping the others? In other words, how do we avoid the disaster and world depression that the United States has brought on? He said, if uh, one country uh, continues to run a balance of payment surplus and uh, uh, has uh, enormous claims on other countries and other countries' uh, accumulated deficit, uh, uh, we can't let them just be painted into a corner or we're going to be back to the position of Germany and France in the 1920s. The country that uh, has the major currency uh, is uh, is has it because it's refusing to import from other countries. It's refusing to help create an international, equitable world order, and so it's—the uh, uh, dominant currencies claims will be written down. Well, of course, the United States knew that Keynes was talking about the dollar uh, that was going to grow, but just imagine today if uh, China could say, uh, we, we've we rethought about the discussions that took place at the end of World War II, shaping how the world uh, financial system developed, and yes, uh, I know that uh, many of the uh, U.S. and uh, NATO uh, say, well, China is going to dominate the whole area and end up being another America. Well, China can say we're we're in agreement with Keynes's principle. If uh, we really uh, uh, get so many uh, export uh, uh, surpluses and so many claims on the rest of the country that they can't pay, of course, we're going to write it down in order to maintain stability imagine if, if uh, and say that this is what imagine if the United States had done this in 1945 and accepted what uh, Keynes did imagine how the whole world development would have been different for the last 75 years that I think would be a great ploy by China
0: no absolutely and you know remember that you know at the 1944 Bretton Woods conference Keynes had gone there with these proposals for bank or for international clearing union, and they were mixed by the United States because the United States wanted to impose the dollar on the rest of the world. By contrast, by the way, Uh, you should know that in China, there is quite a lot of interest in Keynes' proposals for Bancorp and and so on, for a couple of different reasons. You know, uh, one thing I remember very vividly is I was uh, precisely writing an article about Keynes and Bancorp and so on at the end, around the time of the 2008 financial crisis. So I wrote it in the fall of 2008, and it was published in early uh, uh, 2009, and just before it went to press. The governor of the People's Bank of China issued a short paper in which he recalled that indeed this, uh, you know, that Bill Keynes had proposed a bank war, and we need to return to those principles and so on. And thankfully, I just managed to, to stick a reference to that into the article just before it went to press, which was really lucky. But so the Chinese have a lot of interest in apps, and they have. That's that's one thing. Secondly, I think, you know, you have to understand that the Chinese know the price that the uh, Western economy, the, the 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 American economy in particular, has paid for making the dollar the world's money, which is an undermining of its own productive capacity, the f- financialization of its financial system in such a way that it is not it's geared towards predatory activity and speculative activity rather than being geared towards financing productive investment. So uh, in all of these ways, actually, ordinary Americans have paid a huge price for making the dollar the world's currency, which is only uh, a, a good thing for the uh, the dream of the American elite and not good for, for anything else. Um, so, and, and, and the second thing I wanted to say is, you know, that the national currency, we've, we've talked about this before, it you know, this idea that the national currency of any country can easily, stably, reliably, in a good way, be the currency of the world has become naturalized in our time, but it is a completely false idea. And you see, Keynes's career is very interesting from this perspective because, you know, uh, and I've written about this as well. You know, um, when Kane started his career in the in the teens, you know, he is fresh out of college. He went to work for the India office, and there he learned how. Uh, the uh, uh, British financial system worked because, as we've talked before, it was so reliant on British India. So his first book, published in 1913, was on Indian Currency and Finance, and it is widely regarded as the primer. If you want to understand how the gold standard worked, read Indian Currency and Finance. And of course, why would a book on Indian currency and finance be the primer on the gold standard? Because British India was critical to its functioning. Anyway, so if you read this book, it's full of praises for how wonderfully the system works. Keynes was completely uncritical. And then, over the course of the rest of his life, which you think about it, Keynes's it, career spanned the First World War, the 30 years crisis, the First World War, Began it, and then the Second World War more or less ended it. Uh, he died in 1946. So over this period, Keynes was witness to the steepest fall in the international standing and economy of any country. seen. Britain went from being the you know the, the 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 head of the empire on which the world never sun you know, never set to essentially being on the cusp of losing that empire and being turned into a weak, industrially declining. Uh, medium-sized economy. So Keynes designed Bancorp. I mean, Keynes, over the course of his life, became a critic of the gold standard, its deflationary character, the costs it exacts on other countries. All of these things became completely like, you know, he, he absorbed all this. And of course, towards the end of his life, he proposed a replacement, For what used to be this gold sterling exchange standard, which was a complete contrast to it, which would not impose austerity, which would not create financialization, which would allow countries to rule, to run their economies for development, for prosperity, for full employment, et cetera.
1: Well, you could say that the world, that Eurasia today is picking up the strain of world history where the world left off in 1913 and 1914. World War I changed the whole direction of the world. It stopped the evolution of industrial capitalism into socialism uh, with the Russian Revolution and the great fight against uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, And uh, it replaced industrial capitalism with finance capitalism. And today, over a century later, now finally, where uh, the Eurasia is taking the lead and uh, rejecting this retrogression into neo-feudal finance capitalism and picking up uh, where the world was evolving from industrial capitalism into socialism, which seemed to be the wave of the future for everybody who was writing until World War One was such a shock that it uh, it it. it traumatized history and uh we're only right now getting over it uh with uh europe and america fighting against it they don't want the world to continue the way it was going in 1914 that's why they spent all the troops into russia to try to overthrow the revolution they're doing everything they can to prevent it and uh the rest of the world's uh task is to uh uh fight for civilization against the forces of reaction
0: yeah i mean that's so interesting and you know michael i would say that even europe is probably going to get off this uh, crazy pro-American uh, track that it's been on since early last year, since, since the uh, 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 military operations began in Ukraine. I mean, the Europe's position is definitely suicidal. I think increasingly their voices are emerging that are counselling against that. It is not uh, a surprise that um, Macron, on his visit to China, said his was not ours, that europe should stop being a vassal of the united states i think that this so so i think that it's very possible although certainly uh, uh, the bloody mindedness of the and crazy policies of european leaders are not giving us much uh, hope but nevertheless this uh, statements like macron's point to the fact that europe is not in a very comfortable place and it's going to have to uh, if, if you know if only for its own economic survival b- break this crazy uh, attachments to U.S. policy, So so that's one thing. And I guess I sh- I'll say a couple of other things as we should probably wind down soon, uh, Michael. But one thing is that, you know, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I have even written uh, stuff about this. For example, in this article on uh, Keynes and Banco, uh, the last section which looks at the U.S. role in all of this, for example, in mixing Keynes' uh, proposals and, and, and trying to exert its dominance over the rest of the world, which I have argued, was never successful. I've argued this with my geopolitical economy. But um, anyway, the point is this section was entitled The Strange Afterlife of Imperialism, in the sense that the United States, in its desire to emulate to, to, to recreate a kind of the kind of dominance that Britain had enjoyed in the 19th century, the 20th century, that the US would enjoy the same sort of dominance, this attempt managed to of course uh, 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 influence world history, but even though it was not successful, but now the story of that attempt is also at an end. It can no longer realistically even try to create this sort of dominance. And that means that in a certain sense the anti-imperialist tide that had begun back uh, in the, uh, uh, you know, with the uh, outbreak of the First World War and in the 30 years crisis of 1940 to 1945. That anti imperialist trend is now resuming in a bigger way after having been sort of held back a bit by uh, American attempts. But you know, you have to understand that even though the United States wanted to exert its power over the world in the post Second World War period, it was never entirely successful for the simple reason that the communist world existed. The communist world, you know, stretched from Prague to Pyongyang. It was huge. The United States was not the master of this world, well, its existence put serious limits on what the United States could do. And uh, so in that sense, uh, you what you have seen is that only after the end of the Soviet Union, you saw this hubristic attempt on the part of the United States to try to now finally exert its dominance over the world. But that has, as we know, ended really badly. There's is, there is no unipolarity. Instead, there is multipolarity. And... Um, and the united states has acted uh, reacted to this very badly and therefore has been engaged in nonstop wars since then so yeah
1: well, you're right uh, to point out Macron's uh, statement that Europe is uh, caught in the middle. Uh, he sort of France's uh, Donald Trump. Uh, he'll say whatever he thinks is going to uh, be popular, and then he'll just uh, turn around and uh, uh, say uh, to another side uh, the exact opposite. But uh, Europe was in the middle after World War One, uh, and it was it, uh, it it agreed to pay the inter Allied debts, and that would force it to imposed the reparations on Germany that wrecked all of its development. It was so rigid in holding to the old financial system, uh, debt has to be paid, uh, that it it could not break. Well, right now Europe is in the middle again in the the war, uh, uh, America's war against uh, Russia being fought in Ukraine. And uh, I think that uh, when Macron made his statement that uh, maybe Europe should go its own way, he's trying to, uh, take the uh, the uh, voting power away from the right wing uh, of France. Uh, and the irony is it's the right wing in almost uh, every uh, European country, uh, the, the nationalistic wing that is breaking away from the U.S., leaving uh, the left way behind. So the irony is that the left is not playing a role in creating this alternative to neoliberalism. The left, left has embraced neoliberalism ever since uh, Tony Blair and uh, uh, the Bill Clinton. So it, it, it's very unique that uh, we're seeing uh, uh, civilization, uh, a new path of civilization being developed without any reference to uh, the past discussions at all. Uh, I think it would be nice to have a discussion of classical economics, of uh, of the uh, uh, political economy of Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Marx uh, uh, about uh, value and price, and uh, uh, I think they were on to the important things in the 19th century, but it's as if uh, 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 there's a kind of technocratic Class that is trying to uh, read, uh, uh, reanalyze the world without really any reference to history at all, and I think that's what you and I are trying to do in uh, our lectures. Here, we're trying to provide a basis in history to say, all this has happened before. What can uh, what can we learn from the experience of what to do and what to avoid?
0: Absolutely, and 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 Michael, maybe we should we should bring this to an end. But I just. Uh I I I totally agree with you. This is exactly what we need. And in fact, this is much of the argument of my book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. It tries to explain why is it that the left has essentially failed to understand imperialism and this failure today accounts for the fact that it has uniformly become uh, a sort of a cheerleader for the West's disastrous policies against Russia, against China, and so on and so forth. So I think that this is uh, definitely one thing, whereas what I find really interesting, particularly in recent foreign policy statements, major statements that have come out of China and come out of Russia, is that they have put imperialism and the understanding of imperialism at the center of their understanding. And I would say, you know, that some of these, I mean, every time I read these, I feel like, you know, this is astonishing. This is what we have been arguing for such a long time. And now the leaders of these major countries, the governments of these major countries are are essentially behind this analysis, which is really so important. And I think that uh, if the West finally wakes up and realizes what, what it has, you know, what it needs to do, I think this can only be a very good thing. Uh, For us here, because otherwise we are going to be in some sort of spiral of uh, uh, political dysfunction for a very long time.
1: Well, the West may wake up, but the Western leadership of politicians won't wake up. Uh, it's uh, America's had a, its own color revolution by uh, Wall Street here, and uh, you can yes. say that Europe has had its color revolution. So I, think it I, I like evaluation.
0: that, actually. I like that. That was a very good way of putting what's happening in Europe right now. Europe yes. has been subject to a color revolution by the United States, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I think this is... Uh, we've come up to nearly an hour, so... Uh, this has been a great discussion, Michael. And uh, I think next time we are going to decide what exactly to talk about, but we have a couple of pending topics. One of them is, the, of course, to exa- examine in greater detail the, poli- ge- the political and geopolitical economy of the conflict in Ukraine, its effects on the various parts of the world, including Russia and Ukraine and the United States and Europe and so on. And another, of course, we still have to finish our de-dollarization, the final program. So, and, uh, and if you have any other suggestions for topics, please let us know know. know. Uh, Thanks for your attention and see you in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.